Welcome to a very special feature presentation from McQuaid Arcade. I'm Barney. And I'm Biggs. Here at McQuaid Arcade, we love two things. Vampire movies and the 80s. And that's it. Those two things. <laughs> All right, maybe there's some other things, a few other things, but we really love those two things. So I guess it's no surprise that our two favorite vampire movies are from the 80s. We're talking about 1985's Fright Night and 87's The Lost Boys. Two very different vampire movies, despite both coming out so close together. There's a lot to say about both these movies. Let's let's talk about them individually first, shall we? Oh, yes. Fright Night is the story of Charlie Brewster, an average American high schooler who is actually played by a man in his mid to late 20s. <laughs> per usual in Hollywood. <laughs> but that's Hollywood for you. Charlie's a big fan of Peter Vincent, who is the star of a seemingly endless number of the kind of old, schlocky, gothic vampire melodramas that Peter Cushing and Vincent Price and Christopher Lee used to just chew their way through the scenery together in. And Charlie, one night in his room with his girlfriend, watching Peter Vincent and uh, doing a little 80s movie style hanky-panky <laughs> with his also clearly not a teenager girlfriend, he observes some suspicious activity from his bedroom window and he begins to suspect that his mysterious new neighbor is the one responsible for a string of grisly murders seen on the news. And it turns out he's right. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> but this is no ordinary serial killer next door. It's a vampire. <laughs> this is not an ordinary serial killer right. next door. This not is not the run more. of the mill serial killer next door, but a vampire straight out of a Peter Vincent movie. And when this undead creature of the night, this evil nocturnal hell spawn, Jerry, <laughs> <laughs> that's his name. The vampire's name is Jerry, and he is played to absolute smoldering perfection by Chris Sarandon. When he realizes that he's been made, he sets his sights on the meddling kid next door who could put an end to his feeding frenzy once and for all. Who do you turn to when you need protection from a vampire? Why, the world's most famous vampire killer, perhaps? Of course. Charlie enlists the help of Peter Vincent, now the host of Fright Night, a late-night creature feature on Channel 13. Think... You know, the kind of horror hosts we grew up with. Elvira, uh, Al, Grandpa from the Munsters, Lewis, <laughs> Count Floyd. Or, if you are a fellow Chicago kid, son of Sven Gulli. Yes. But, you know, without the, the rubber chickens and the Berwin. <laughs> Berwin. Those were so Non-Chicagoans are like, what are they? What? Rubber chickens. <laughs> so, Peter Vincent plays the role of this amazing vampire killer. But of course it's a role within a role because in real life, in the setting of the movie, he is sort of a dopey actor who really doesn't have any skills. But what's interesting to see in his costume, when he's playing the role of the vampire killer, he has this necklace and with the powers of modern technology, I was able to enhance it a little bit and look at three of the symbols up close. And I just think this kind of stuff is sort of interesting. So the first thing he has is an Italian horn, sometimes called a cornicello, which is a symbol of protection. He has a hamsa, which traces its roots back to ancient Mesopotamia. And his, typically you'll see this hand symbol that has an eye in the middle, but his actually has a star of David at the center rather than an eye. And then the third symbol is a winged scarab. And this, of course, goes all the way back to ancient Egypt, all of these have been used as symbols of protection. And I just thought that was kind of a neat detail. It's just a really rich and nuanced kind of portrayal of this character, something that you probably can't see in a normal 80s movie setup. Like it really took sort of post 2000 and having a high definition 
film in a great TV screen to look up close and be able to freeze frame. But I also thought it was kind of fascinating that it didn't have a cross on there, which actually seemed to be the one symbol that really had an effect on the vampires in the film. But maybe the trick was you have to have faith in it, as they suggested. So I am always interested, as you know, Barney, in parameters, especially in the context of sci-fi, fantasy, and horror films. And I love these little details like this. And it's also something that potentially you could defictionalize in a very real way. These are all active symbols for different cultures, even to this day. So what I hear you saying is that you are going to be wearing a Peter Vincent talisman necklace <laughs> well, everywhere. <laughs> Let's just say that it's a possibility. Some Etsy searches have been done. <laughs> you know it's true. Charlie ambushes Peter outside of the TV studio where his show is taped. Peter assumes that he's a fan looking for an autograph, uh, but then realizes he's talking about an actual literal vampire living next door to him and dismisses him as a delusional nut job and drives away. Charlie's friends, girlfriend Amy and Ed, a.k.a. Evil Ed, who nobody really seems to like, and doesn't really seem to be friends with them, but apparently we're supposed to believe they're friends. I don't know. Um, yeah, he's such a strange <laughs> kind of a third-wheeled character, right? He doesn't doesn't really seem to be connected with either one of them directly, but yet he's quite they comfortable. They seem to actively dislike him, and uh, but he's there. Yes. So they uh, they go to Peter Vincent. They obviously obviously don't believe Charlie either, but they are genuinely worried that Charlie is going to try and murder his neighbor with a wooden stake. So they convince Reasonable. Peter. They bribe Peter who we find out is being evicted and needs the money to perform a fake vampire test on the dreaded Jerry. <laughs> that's uh, in the Fright Night uh, remake from a few years ago. That's like a running joke. Like seriously, the vampire's name is Jerry. And look, we find out in Fright Night 2, which should not be watched, uh, that Jerry <laughs> is apparently over a thousand years old. So clearly the man's name, his real name isn't Jerry. It's just a name he's adopted to sort of become more, you know. Maybe Jerry is a timeless name. Timeless. That harkens back to ancient Sumerian. <laughs> I don't know. How can we know? Is it not possible? So he's hired to perform a fake vampire test on Jerry, proving that he's just a regular, normal, impossibly handsome guy that just happens to live next door and to put an end to Charlie's paranoia. But when Jerry doesn't cast a reflection in Peter's mirror... He realizes that Charlie isn't crazy after all. And because he's not crazy, Peter takes off back to his apartment from to hide from the vampire who now may or may not know that he knows. But he has a change of heart, decides to help Charlie save Amy, who has been captured by Jerry. Some undead fighting antics ensue, including a showdown with Jerry's terrifying, near unstoppable zombie guardian, Billy. What is with these names? These names. I don't know. They're wonderful. In the end, the vampire goes up in a blaze of sunlight and fantastic practical effects. It is so awesome to watch the ultra suave Chris Sarandon inhabit this role. I mean, he is really bringing so much of the coolness to this character that if he were replaced by a different actor, I really think the movie would have a totally different feel. He's natural. He's practiced. And he really really feels like he is a wise and dangerous old vampire who's extremely confident. I love that feeling of he's not afraid really at any point, even up until the end, he is just so sure of himself. And I think that's part of the, the excitement of seeing Charlie, who is this teenager versus this thousand year old plus vampire who's really got everything together. And speaking of those fantastic practical special effects, 
like Jaws and so many of the best movies, they do a lot more by showing less. Now, I really think they did a fair amount of effects here. We have the amazing fangs. We have some facial changes. We have a, a freaking wolf, maybe not a werewolf, but a wolf, but then he's in varying stages of transition. So there's a lot here, but I think by being practical, by keeping things largely in the dark, it just has such a different feel than those really off key visions of the nineties where they were trying to illustrate everything with cheesy CGI. And I just think you can't really replace the practical effects. In fact, the wolf scenes and those sort of transitional phases from evil ed really reminded me of Rick Baker's 1981 tour de force in American werewolf in London. The, uh, the only thing I didn't like was when Billy Cole, the sort of invincible zombie, I don't know what he is, uh, guard or attendant has that melting effect on the stairway and that that kind of looked like nickelodeon slime going on there yeah and then there's the piece of trivia in the final vampire mm-hmm. fight where when jerry is actually getting exposed to sunlight and exploding the puppet that was used which is very bat-like and, and kind of frightening actually was originally created for the ghost librarian in ghostbusters wow but it was rejected for being too terrifying for a pg movie watching fright night in 2020 feels like opening a time capsule and finding another time capsule inside on the surface. It's this just perfectly eighties take on the classic vampire story. Everything is just right. The clothes, Charlie's nondescript brown puffy coat that he's wearing to school that every eighties and seventies kid had one point or another class. Jerry's slick, long gray leather trench coat and his slacks with thousands of pleats on him that he wears, uh, <laughs> In the the nightclub scene, which is a great scene, the music, we got Devo and the Jay Giles band and Autograph all on the soundtrack and those amazing special effects. It's all there underneath it all. The delicious, chewy center underneath all that crunchy 80s coating is a look into the history of horror movies themselves through the glimpses of the Peter Vincent movies, the fictional Peter Vincent movies that we see on Charlie's little bedroom TV. We're reminded of the kind of horror movies that we're just not popular anymore. And when Peter does approach or when Charlie does approach Peter outside the TV studio, Peter tells him that Fright Night has been canceled because kids don't care about vampires anymore. All they want to see, according to Vincent, are, quote, demented madmen running around in ski masks, hacking up young versions. And the old saying, art imitates life. In 1985, vampires weren't just played out in Fright Night's fictional version of Iowa, but here in the real world, too. Frank Langella's recent version of Dracula had not been a hit with audiences or critics and love at first bite, which I feel like was one of those movies that was constantly on cable back in the day. <laughs> I feel like I've seen parts of it over and over. It was and a over. comedy. It was released that same year, like a spoof, a Dracula spoof. It did pretty well financially, but only because it cost seriously next to nothing to make. And both those movies came out the year after John Carpenter just changed the horror movie game with Halloween. And vampires were about as popular as an Olive Garden in Transylvania. Because Olive Garden is an Italian restaurant and has garlicky food. And you know what vampires hate? What do they hate, Biggs? Well, garlic, nope. I think, bread among sticks. other things. Vampires are terrified of breadsticks. And that's why they don't like Olive Garden. Anyway. So Fright Night is this tribute to the golden age of the monster movie. You know, retro throwbacks might be Hollywood's kind of bread and butter now, but back in 1985, 
releasing a vampire movie was actually a big risk. According to Tom Holland, he was really able to fly under the radar and kind of do whatever he wanted with this movie and create the kind of movie that he himself missed seeing at the theater because the studio, Columbia Pictures, was focused on their big projects that summer. The unforgettable classics, Perfect, starring Jamie Lee Curtis and John Travolta and... (laughs) The Slugger's Wife. Two films that have really shaped us more than really anything we've ever talked about here on the show. I think we need to add like some cricket noises after we see the names of those movies. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so the risk paid off. Fright Night, it went on to do not only do pretty well at the box office, but more importantly, it went on to become a bona fide horror classic that people still talk about today. While Tom Holland created this sort of homage to the classic vampire story, Joel Schumacher took the script for The Lost Boys, which was originally envisioned as this very kid-friendly, vampire-infused version of The Goonies, which was it was actually supposed to be directed by Richard Donner, who directed The Goonies, and he hated it. He turned it into this dark, sexy thrill ride full of music and gore. And saxophones. And saxophones. So let's talk about The Lost Boys. It is the story of the Emerson family. It's Lucy, the mom, her two kids, Michael and Sam, and their dog, Nanook, who is one of the surprise stars of the show in this movie. They're moving from Arizona, and it's cute. You can tell they're from Arizona. Uh, Lucy, the mom, has some turquoise jewelry on, and a lot of Sam's weird clothes that we're going to talk about later have this sort of interesting, vaguely Southwest kind of feel to them. Uh, They're moved from Arizona to the fictional uh, California city of Santa Carla. Which, as it turns out, is the uh, murder capital of the world. I wonder why. Hmm. Well, it turns out Santa Carla is uh, lousy with the vampires. And they are just eating their way through the boardwalk. They recruit older brother Michael and, unbeknownst to him, have him drink the blood of David, the brood's apparent leader, Kiefer Sutherland, with a glorious spiked mullet. <laughs> uh, which begins his transformation into what his little brother Sam calls a goddamn shit-sucking vampire. I believe that's a technical term. <laughs> this uh, this movie is hilarious. This is a genuinely really funny movie. This is sort of the perfect horror comedy that leans into both of those things perfectly, never one at the expense of the other. So like Charlie Brewster, Sam, young Sam, enlists vampire hunter help to deal with the undead threat. This time, though, there's a pair of hunters, the Frog Brothers, who Sam meets in their parents' comic book shop. And unlike Peter Vincent, who in real life isn't a, a fearsome vampire killer, but a kindly old actor, the Frog Brothers are the real deal. And after sneaking into the vampire's lair and staking one of them in just a gushing torrent of blood, and as we saw watching the movie in you know all of its new upscaled 4K whatever, uh, glitter. It really was amazing because that actually makes for the second Twilight connection. Those vampires in Twilight were not the first to bring sparkle into this lore. Uh, in fact, it turns out that the blood used on set had glitter in it to make it look more shimmery and magical. And it really looks great on a lower res screen. But in the high res screen, you can clearly see there's dried glitter on everybody. But that's the second connection to the Twilight series, my beloved Twilight series. That we've made so far here on the show. <laughs> That's right. And I will also wow. point out that, of course, the Emerson family came from Arizona, where Bella Swan was coming from. It is all coming together. Coincidence? Read the book. <laughs> uh, so Sam and Michael, along with the Frog Brothers, 
after their attack on the vampire den, defend the Emerson's home against the retaliatory strike that evening when David and his two remaining vampire clanmates are killed in very fun, creative ways on screen. We find out that it isn't actually David who's a head vampire, but Lucy's new boyfriend, Max, who owns the video store where she works. He orchestrated the whole thing, Lucy's son's initiation into his undead little family in order to convince Lucy to join their blood-sucking fun. Uh, And it almost works until Max is staked in a big way, quite literally, by the movie's unlikely hero. We're going to talk about this scene a little bit. It's one of my favorite movie endings ever, I think. So there have been so many different cinematic takes on the vampire story, the vampire legend. And even though they came, they came out just a couple of years apart, these movies take such different approaches to telling that story. Despite their differences, though, there are some really cool similarities, right? As we mentioned, uh, in both films, a teenager, in one of them actually played by a, a real teenager, Corey Haim. Remarkably. Yeah. Seeks out experienced vampire killers to save someone they love. In Fright Night, we have the fictional vampire killer turned actual vampire killer, Peter Vincent. And can I just take a moment to point out that that is a fascinating concept. So Peter Vincent is this actor who's thrust into the role of being what he portrays in his films. And I think that's really inspiring. There is this concept of fake it till you make it right, which is sort of a goofy concept, but it turns out that this is reflected in a lot of other philosophies. So in new thought philosophy, this is sometimes referred to as the law of attraction. And you probably heard of this from that kind of cheese ball version of a book called the secret, but it's this belief that positive or negative thoughts actually can shape your life. It brings those positive or negative experiences uh, into your life. So it's a little weird. A lot of people call this just crazy pseudoscience stuff, but this actually has some ancient roots in it as well. Going way back to hermeticism, especially the work of Paracelsus, there's uh, reflections in transcendentalism, specific Bible verses actually have this concept in there as well. So I thought that was kind of neat because even though it's kind of portrayed as a goofy comedic adventure for this character, it really is telling that he decided to do it and actually became right an effective and successful vampire killer simply by by faking it till he was actually doing it. And I thought that was kind of neat. Maybe that's reading a little bit too much into it, but I really enjoyed that. And that came to me and I thought we better talk about it here. And Tom Holland once said that while Charlie is the engine of this story, the sort of element that drives it forward, Peter Vincent is its heart. And we get so many levels of this character right first we see him as the star of the the kind of cheesy old horror movies that uh, as a young fan horror young horror fan watching this movie in 1985 would have grown up with and the fictional peter vincent movies we get to see just dials that cheese up to 11 there's this one fantastic shot of him about to kill a vampire and he's got the wrong end of the stake the blunt end of the stake pointing at the vampire, <laughs> yes. the, the pointy end, the business end is pointed at him. And, uh, <laughs> you know, then he drives it home and there is just this spray of blood that looks like somebody squeezed it out of one of those old school, like picnic style ketchup bottles, the red bottle with the white <laughs> top that you squeeze out ketchup onto your hot dog. Um, and then we see him as the host of the kind of late night creature feature show where we would have seen one of those movies. And then we see the real Peter. He's uh, this kind, older gentleman with a genuine love for these movies that we've that he's made 
and this era of films that that no longer exists. When you see him admiring that just the vast collection of props he's kept over the years, he holds them with such reverence. And it's it's those props that help Peter and Charlie defeat the vampire. Uh, he's got an old mirrored cigarette case, right? That first reveals Jerry as being a vampire. His trusty vampire hunting kit, this beautiful old suitcase kind of thing full of crosses and holy water and uh, a gun. Again, he's going to use to just murder this guy who's in the house with Jerry. <laughs> to murder Jerry's roommate. Right. And then we have the Frog Brothers, who describe themselves as fighters for truth, justice in the American way. They have gear, not props, right? They are real vampire hunter- hunters. Their loadout is practical. They've got stakes. They've got squirt guns full of holy water. When Sam walks into the comic shop wearing this, basically the amazing Technicolor dream coat, <laughs> this weird thing, uh, like a fashion victim, as the frogs put it, they're straight out of like a military surplus catalog, complete with, you know, the Rambo headband. And it's funny, they're this stark contrast to their parents who we see behind the counter. These two hippies just passed out together uh, behind the counter. And to me, this vibe, this real grit, this actual teenager competent people vibe that reminds me a lot of the goonies it, it really unlike peter vincent it's a it's a really interesting juxtaposition the frog brothers and then the frog brothers plus Corey haim are this truly effective team and the sleeping hippie parents really nicely represent their ind- utter independence from adults the way the frog brothers and peter are introduced to these stories is similar too it's through pop culture in fright night it's peter's old vampire movies And in The Lost Boys, it's comic books. And the lore in both of these mediums help our heroes identify their enemies as vampires. Peter uses his uh, old prop mirror. Sam reads about the Hounds of Hell in a vampire comic book given to him by the Frog Brothers in their shop, despite his insistence that he doesn't like horror comics. Speaking of those comics, a uh, term and concept that we can't get enough of here at McQuaid Arcade, defictionalization. I have Bottleneck Gallery released prop replicas of the two vampire comics that Sam reads in the movie. And I got a copy of each and they are so cool. They're ex- they, as far as I can tell, they're exact replicas. I've not actually read through them because I'm afraid to take them out of the, the bags and boards, but uh, I'll put pictures of them up on the uh, bonus stage for this episode. So cool. And uh, yeah, super cool. Both movies also have their vampire killers conducting vampire tests. Uh, in the Lost Boys, we have the hilarious dinner scene where Max, who eventually we learn is in fact the head vampire comes over to Lucy's house for dinner and Sam and the frog brothers suspect that he's a vampire and decide at dinner to, to conduct, conduct all these tests on him. They replace the Parmesan cheese with raw grated garlic and then offer him some. And when he of course chokes on it, <laughs> they get all excited and they look at him. They're like, uh, I bet it's, it's horrible. You hate it, right? It's garlic. And he's like, no, I, I like garlic. This is just a pile of raw garlic on top of my food. So they all kind of look at each other. And then there's further, you know, they turn the lights off. And when the lights come back on, there's a mirror right in Max's face. And he screams. And it's just this hilarious slapstick scene. They spill water, which I guess we're supposed to assume is holy water on his lap. And uh, all this crazy stuff. We come to find out that because he was invited into the house by Michael, all of their, their tests and everything, you know, are rendered useless against him. Very different than Fright Night's more traditional take on vampires, that the vampire can't actually enter your home uh, unless being invited in. 
this is one of my favorite concepts in a film where they subvert your expectation about a parameter. It's sort of all my favorite things rolled into one. You are left with the question of what's going to happen here. Are these tests real? Does this actually apply to the folkloric vampire and the real quote unquote real vampire, or are these apocryphal? And that's something I enjoy that tension because in this case, of course it was because he was invited in that it rendered everything null and void. But we know, for example, in the lost boys that your reflection isn't able to be seen in the mirror because Michael is becoming translucent in front of his brother's very eyes. And in fright night, Peter, Peter Vincent, like we said, conducts a test on Jerry, a fake test to prove to Charlie that he's not a vampire. They set up the scene by, you know, Peter and the crew calling Jerry to say like, hey, the crazy kid next door who wants to murder you with a wooden stake, can we conduct a, a vampire test on you to prove to him that you're just a normal person? And Jerry says that he's a born again Christian and doesn't want any crosses or holy water because that would be sacrilegious, which is pretty brilliant, a pretty brilliant way out. So... Peter just brings over some regular tap water that he drinks. Another more obvious similarity these two movies have is the time period they're set in, right? They're both in the 80s, very close together, but they both show us a very different view of the 80s. As Midwestern kids who grew up in the 80s, Fright Night looks very familiar. The kids, the quote-unquote kids, uh, dress like most of the people we knew back then dressed. But Lost Boys... This movie is timeless in that it's a vision of the 80s that, you know, when kids look at, at the clothes people wore in the 80s, they see all the crazy styles and stuff, and they think that's what everyone was running around looking like. But this version of the 80s, it's so crazy and so fantastical. The whole boardwalk atmosphere, the outfits all the vampires are wearing, the shirtless guy with chains for a belt playing the saxophone it's so out there and so crazy that it's hard to even place this movie as 80s it's really true it has such a powerful aesthetic drive that it takes you out of the real world just enough that it really does feel timeless another place this this difference in view is apparent is on the movie soundtracks fright night is very identifiably 80s Right, come to me the sort of theme to the movie, very synthy, very eighties, as is you know, a lot of the background songs. Like I said, we have some Devo on there. But The Lost Boys is so much more eclectic, and none of these songs feel dated in the same way that Nightclub song does. It's as ambiguously timeless and mysterious as the fashion and the overall feel of the rest of the movie. I totally agree. And I feel that there is a bit of a lost art of great movie music. We're seeing in the modern era that, you know, they either pick songs that go in the film or a soundtrack. And many of the modern soundtracks I think are kind of forgettable. We were both real soundtrack nerds growing up. It was a way to relive those favorite movie moments long before you could own everything digitally and watch them over and over on demand. But it was also a doorway into very different musical forms. In the modern movies that I've been watching, I feel like there's still some great scores. A lot of them are heavily influenced by John Williams, of course, as amazing as he is and, and as iconic as he has been. But maybe it's been too much influence. 
Bonds. They've gone with these bombastic classical scores, often without the subtle and clever leitmotifs that kind of stick with us from the best examples. These more daring original scores, I think, have really become difficult to find. And the really good ones, like Fright Night, is one of them. And there's, I guess, a story behind this. Tom Holland sought out Brad Fidel after his work in The Terminator, which, of course, is one of the most memorable movie themes. And it really scores when we think about it. He's a very strange character, and it is worth, as we shared and laughed about, he has a bizarre musical that honestly is one of those things that straddles a line between parody and reality. We, we really weren't sure, but I think he was trying to be earnest with it. It's it's pretty pretty funny if you have some time to kill on YouTube. But in Fright Night, he's created this seductive, complex, and truly memorable score. My favorite is Come to Me. And as we were doing our research for this episode, I listened to it over and over and over and over. I couldn't stop. Everyone in my family is like, will you stop playing that song? It's a really synthy piece. It has echoes of Terminator in it. Once, once you make that connection, I think you can't help but hear those connections. And it really plays a powerful part in setting the tone and building that world. Of course, in addition to this hypnotic score, something that, again, a lot of movies don't have, there's also an entire second album, the soundtrack. And this is where we hear some of those interesting songs played in the background uh, during the dance hall scene. And again, they conjure up the movie for me instantly, just like hearing Beat City from Ferris Bueller. The music doesn't just support and enrich the films. It defines them. It makes them what they are. And in a way, to me, this is the highest art. It's putting all of these components and playing them off each other. And you have these masters built building the score, the soundtrack, you have master actors inhabiting their character roles and giving them this life. And when all this comes together, you get this synergy to make an amazing movie experience. Lou Graham's Lost in the Shadows, right? It's so much atmosphere. It holds your attention, even though this is not really the kind of music I would listen to normally. Here it is on the soundtrack of Lost Boys, and I've heard it hundreds and hundreds of times. Echo and the Bunnymen's version, their their cover of People Are Strange, it's so good, it's so unique, it's so spot on to me, that's the definitive version of the song, right? This is the one that I think about when I sing that song. It's so rare for a cover to be important in its own right, and this really, I think, is is in some ways better than the original, but that is due in no small part to the fact that it's connected with this movie. And then finally, Cry Little Sister by Gerard McMahon. It captures the entire feel of the movie and encapsulates it. And it's used as this recurring theme throughout this haunting melody. And there's just not much like it out there, including there's even an organ that's playing in it about halfway point in the song. People Are Strange is an Echo in the Bunnyman song, not a Doors song. There, I said it. Don't at me, <laughs> as the kids say. Uh, no, I remember hearing the real version, the, the Doors version of that song after I had seen Lost Boys. And I was like, no, 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 this is like, what is this? Like, what is? And I think we were young enough that the, the concept of a cover was still pretty foreign. And to this day, I absolutely prefer the, the one on the soundtrack. The Fright Night soundtrack does a good job. The songs do a good job as background of sort of setting the scene. But the Lost Boys soundtrack, those songs, they make those scenes. 100%. The two film styles also diverge a lot when it comes to their depiction of the vampires themselves. Jerry Dandridge is very much the classical Dracula-style vampire. He spends most of the movie as this incredibly suave, handsome, sort of mysterious guy. But he also does some really traditional stuff like take the form of mist or fog and a bat. And it's not just a regular bat, but it's just giant, terrifying, monstrous bat. 
And by the end of the final battle, he looks far more bestial. He's got this red leathery skin, pointed bat-like ears, red eyes, and this mouthful of these giant protruding teeth. His underlings, Ed, Evil Ed and Amy, who he turns to vampires uh, at some point in the movie, they're also very bestial with this mouthful of these, you know, not traditional vampire fangs, but these teeth that kind of stick out and go all over the place. Very, they look like just terrifying predators. And as you mentioned, we see Ed full on transform into a wolf. We've got just more of this magical transformation sort of happening in this movie. And when Peter Vincent kills Ed as he's a wolf, this transformation scene back into a human is it's a long scene. The effects are amazing and it's really sad you see him as like this half wolf person. He's making just these whimpering noises, kind of reaching out for Peter Vincent. And this he's such a neat character because he's this jerk through the whole movie. But then he's preyed upon by Jerry because, you know, he's an outcast. He's alone. He feels alone. And he's just this sad, weird kid. It's, it's a it's a it's a really weirdly poignant scene. And the effects are just just amazing. I'd put it up there with pretty much anything else in the genre in the 80s. I agree. And the acting in that scene, it's heart-wrenching. I yeah. mean, these characters, you really feel for both of them. You feel Peter Vincent's fear and sadness at killing this young guy who was sort of seduced into this vampire role and felt invincible. And I think that's a really neat connection to Lost Boys, too. You'll never grow old. You'll never die. You know, you, you feel this poor guy who was an outcast is now powerful. But here he is. He lost that power. Evil Ed couldn't even keep his vampiric powers. With Lost Boys, we get much more subtle transformations, right? We get regular people who suddenly shift and have these vampiric faces and fangs. And the Lost Boys is actually where Joss Whedon drew the inspiration for the the vampires that he used in Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Very similar. Regular people who then sort of vamp out and you know, have these all of a sudden crazy vampire faces. And that makes sense because, yes, the, aesthetically, the vampires do look similar in Buffy. And it's cool to think about how many different takes there are on the vampiric look from sort of True Blood, HBO's series True Blood, where they were extremely minimal change. You just saw those little fangs pop out uh, and then retract very nicely to really we're seeing these horrific bestial as you say figures at the end of the film when they're totally vamped out it's kind of fascinating to imagine what the range would be for these and i i totally agree the the way that they did the fangs is so interesting from an aesthetic choice they really made in lost boys much more subtle effect change than we saw in fright night with these protruding teeth that really looked almost like shark like which was frightening and when we think about the the whole spectrum of cinematic vampires that we've been seeing for decades now nearly a century i would imagine we think about nosferatu the horrible monstrous looking guy all the way up until you know twilight which is just attractive sparkly people thank you for <laughs> that reference <laughs> um so along with these different depictions of vampires in these movies are the different ways they each say you can kill a vampire one thing they have in common is the idea that new vampires vampires that have not I guess, killed yet, will revert back to normal if the head vampire is killed, right? In Lost Boys, the once the head vampire, Max, is killed, Michael and Star and 
Lil Laddie, Lil Eddie Munster, uh, all revert back to normal. In fact, that's the cool moment when David is killed and Michael and Star feel exactly the same. That's how they know. Wait a minute. He wasn't the head vampire. And in Fright Night, Amy is turned by Jerry. Once he's killed, she turns back to normal. But Evil Ed, old Evil Ed is still alive at the end of this movie. The very last scene. We see his red eyes and Jerry's now vacant house. And we hear him say his iconic line again. Ooh, you're so cool, Brewster. And as we know, as kids who were uh, vampire enthusiasts, who used to dress up in Frog Brothers-like camo <laughs> and get sharp sticks and patrol the the forest preserves nearby looking for vampire nests. True story, by the way. That actually happened. And you should all be grateful for our work and our service. Truth, justice, and the American way. <laughs> As we know, Peter Vincent made a terrible mistake when he pulled the, the table leg or whatever it was that pierced Evil Ed's heart out of the corpse when he left the house, because uh, you got to cut the head off first before you do that, right? You can't go pulling the stake out. Funny thing is, Fright Night 2, which again, nobody needs to watch. <laughs> Peter Vincent, uh, Roddy McDowell is again endearing and wonderful as Peter Vincent, but it's an awful movie and a terrible sequel, but uh, it never addresses that. We don't see, like if Fright Night 2 was the return of Evil Ed, I would have been, you know, all over it, but it's not. Again, don't watch it. It's terrible. But, uh, other ways to kill vampires in these movies. Holy water is common between both of them. As we said, the Frog Brothers load up squirt guns with holy water. Peter Vincent pretends to give holy water to Jerry, who's visibly, you know, cautious when drinking the quote unquote holy water just on the off chance that it's real because he knows it will probably kill him. Obvious stake through the heart will do the trick. Garlic. Garlic is represented in both movies. In Lost Boys, one of the vampires just straight out tells us that garlic doesn't work. Lost Boys makes it seem like any sort of penetration of the heart will do the trick. Michael is impaled on, you know, the grandpa whose house they move into. He has all sorts of crazy taxidermy skulls and everything everywhere. And Michael is, or David rather, is impaled on some sort of gazelle horn or something. Uh, one of the vampires is shot with an arrow into a stereo and then explodes. Death by stereo. It's a great scene. <laughs> My favorite, I think, death scene is... When the vampire who tells the Frog Brothers that garlic doesn't work, that whole scene, the whole scene where they defend the house is so cool. They lay these traps and get ready. They have a bathtub full of holy water with a bunch of garlic floating in it. And the vampire with the long blonde hair corners them in the bathroom, is about to kill them both. And he looks into the bathtub. They look into the bathtub and then he looks and he kind of laughs. He's like, you know, garlic don't work, boys. The real star of the show here, Nanook, the dog, the big husky kind of malamute dog sort of the last dog you would think a family living in arizona would have but whatever runs in and just tackles the vampire and knocks him into the bathtub full of holy water and they're screaming and blood starts flying out of all of the faucets and the remember that the drains yes. in the house the sinks start flying apart it's those scenes joel schumacher those death scenes he did such an amazing job i complain a lot about what he did with batman but here all of his sensibilities worked so well. He was just a pitch perfect choice for this movie. As we said, Richard Donner was originally going to be the director because this was very much a play on Peter Pan. This was about literal boys, the Lost Boys, which, by the way, much like I didn't know People Are Strange was a song before hearing. Uh, I didn't I didn't realize it was a song somebody else did. I didn't get that reference at all. 
as somebody who was not into Peter Pan as a kid, it was only until many years later that I realized the ter- the Lost Boys was a Peter Pan reference, these boys who wouldn't grow old. But originally, they were going to be literal boys. The Frog Brothers were going to be Boy Scouts. And I'm sure it would have been a cute movie, but man, I will be forever grateful to Joel Schumacher for what he what he did with that script. Wow. So that is a wild take on Peter Pan that the reason they stayed children forever is because they were freaking vampires. Oh, I think somebody needs to make that movie, an actual Peter Pan vampire movie. <laughs> I'm in. Oh, I'm wow. In. Opening night for sure. We got a crowd fund it. Let's do it. Let's make it. Can I tell you about my favorite scene in Lost Boys? Yes. My favorite scene was the Rambo style montage when the boys are getting ready to fight. <laughs> it is so quintessentially 80s, the music, everything pitch perfect. And it really is one of my all time favorite scenes. It gets you geared up, ready to action. I think we may have rehearsed using that scene when we were going on our vampire hunting and vampire protecting missions. Yep. Yeah, we did. There are so many great scenes in that movie. So many set pieces. One that I mentioned earlier in the show was the... Uh, the defeat of Max, the head vampire, by an unlikely hero. It's when the grandpa returns home and you hear La Cucaracha playing on his old <laughs> truck. And he, it's, it's brilliant how they did it. Earlier in the movie, they show him putting these giant tent stakes or, or fence posts into the ground, these big spiked sort of fence posts into the ground. And when he drives away for his date... With the widow, I forget what her name is, but it's this hilarious romance. He's putting Windex on like aftershave. <laughs> and when he drives away in his old truck and sounds the La Cucaracha horn, he's got these huge fence posts, uh, sharp fence posts in the back of his truck. And when all is lost, when Max, you know, he's so powerful, he's just throwing Michael and everybody else aside. And he tells Lucy that he was behind this whole thing, that he refers to David and the other vampires as his boys how he wanted them to recruit Michael and Sam so that she would join him. And she was about to, because he has Sam, he's about to kill Sam. And so she reaches out her hand to Max and you hear the, (laughs) and the grandpa's truck backs through the wall of the house in this huge explosion. One of the tent, one of the, I keep saying 10 stick. One of the fence posts comes flying off the truck and Michael tackles Max and pushes him into the way. And he just gets impaled by this giant stake and then flown into the fireplace. Huge explosion. It's amazing. And the grandpa gets out of the truck and goes to the kitchen and opens the fridge, his special shelf of the fridge that he tells everyone not to, not to touch. And he takes out his bottle of Dr. Pepper or whatever it is. And he's taking a long pull on this cold pop. And the mom and the kids are there and she's like, dad, are, are you okay? And he finishes his drink and he says, one thing about living in Santa Carla, I never could stomach all the damn vampires. <laughs> and they start in again with people are strange. And you see the family's face just staring at him. And it's so brilliantly done. The scene fades out with him closing the refrigerator door it feels like a sitcom. and the light goes out right it almost feels like the ending it is of a like sitcom. so again the music just caps it off perfectly it's it's just this fantastic scene it really is an, an abrupt stop to this unbelievable action-packed sequence and then just bam it's over and speaking of things being over <laughs> i think that about wraps it up wraps up this special mcquade arcade feature presentation on the lost boys and fright night 
we hope you enjoyed it. Remember, you uh, if you have an idea for a show, you can always hit us up at, at McQuaidArcade at gmail.com or on social media. Be sure to check out McQuaidArcade.com for this episode's bonus stage for bonus material about the stuff we talked about. And of course, don't forget to stay limber.